Hello and welcome. Whoa, stop. Wasn't that racket in the background? Could you go to see if that a, a bait? Seagulls, man. Wipe the cunts out. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the eighth edition. Well, the second eighth edition of the Scottish Liberty Podcast. We had a very special guest on the show yesterday, but unfortunately we because made Because we're a couple of bungling amateurs. <laughs> we Forgot to sound check and uh, the sound oh, check. Oh, wait a minute, what's this? We came and we forgot to sound check. <laughs> Who forgot to sound I, check? I, I don't remember you saying, hey, wait a minute, we have to sound check before we I started. assumed that you had done <laughs> no. that because you're supposed right, You told I me you were a professional. I did everything. You, I was thought I, I was working never, with a professional. I would never say I was a professional, so that was your <laughs> misconception All right, and your yeah. folly to assume. In the meantime, welcome, yeah, welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. It's now the 22nd of July, 2008. 2008. <laughs> We're a couple of bungling amateurs. We don't even know what fucking year it is already. <laughs> right, okay. 2016. Right. And we've got some interesting stories today. Yeah, I could start with, I'll tell you an interesting story just quickly. I cycle here, as you know, because I'm virtuous. And I'm saving the planet, and I really like to fucking be self-righteous about the fact that I'm not using a car. Yeah, that's what I am. But I cycled here, and uh, this is really childish. On the way here, just as I was past the Botanical Gardens, a little guy, he must have been about, I don't know, he couldn't be any more about 11 or 12 years old, came whizzing past me on his little bike. I was outraged, and I thought, I'm not having this. And uh, he, he got a good way ahead of me, but I, I dropped a gear, boosted the bike forward, just managed to catch up with him as we were reaching the set of traffic lights, and I whizzed past him. The really funny thing is, as I got past him, I sat bolt upright in the saddle and held my breath and started, and kind of just looked as if I wasn't breaking a sweat as I went past him. I, I don't know why I did that, but I was just outraged by this wee guy whizzing past me in a bicycle. It's always nice to know that, that at 49 years old, you still haven't outgrown that fucking cock out nobody's better than me on a bike bullshit You're so fragile, so illegal. yeah so a little guy on a bike who the man who the man who the daddy okay don't fuck with me you little 12 year old squirt so there you I go. didn't That's know uh, that your love for market competition uh, <laughs> extended, extended to, to bicycles to and 12 year olds well <laughs> one thing where there's no competition is nuclear weapons <laughs> well, you know, but in a free market, there should be, you know. Uh, um, to I, see, to I would like to see 12-year-olds in Bangladesh making their own nuclear weapons <laughs> and getting them out there on the free market. I was trying to make some kind of oblique reference to mutually exclude... What? Mutually assured destruction. Indeed, that's yeah. what I'm talking about. Right, so the Parliament passed a motion to buy new nuclear weapon submarine things. Okay. As you can see, I'm really up on my military stuff. Right, yeah, they've decided to renew Trident. With Trident no. System. With almost no. Our supposedly resistance. independent deterrent. Uh, right. Why is know. it not independent? Well, I don't know. I can't see us being able to use it without having at least tacit permission from the Americans to do so. And given that situation, I mean, do we really need our own? Won't America do it for us? Like everything else, the level of debate on this thing has been so... It's pretty bad. 
No, I can't make an informed decision. I'm not privy to the shit, the stuff that, that people are, are getting on committees and things like that. So I really don't know what the threat level is. Supposing there was a threat level, how would having nuclear weapons defend us from that threat? Well, in the past, when it was the Cold War, I was all for nuclear weapons. I was a lot more hawkish and I was a lot more, definitely a lot more right-wing than I am now. I believed in the mutually assured destruction paradigm. I believed in the, the, the deterrence of nuclear weapons. I think it worked in that context where you had two rational players in the game and both knew the consequences. So like yeah. The idea is that if you've both got guns in your back pocket and you both know that, you're less likely to get in a scrap with one another because you both know where it's going if trouble happens. This is, is the, the this is the thinking behind it. And it seems to have worked. Right? Although you can't disprove that, really. You know, we never... We have a counterfactual. No, but we, we had the, you know, the whole Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah, and does it not create additional threats? Yeah, you could make that case, and I suppose you're right. They've and been, does they, it not allow the eight or nine countries that have nuclear weapons to just kind of bully the other countries in the world? I... I, I I I cannot disagree with with that that paradigm. Oh, the only point I would make is, I believed in it at the time. Now it's a different game. You don't have two players in the game. You have multiple players in the game. You don't need a nuclear submarine in order to deliver a nuclear punch. You can sneak something the size of a little child's football, you know, weapons grade plutonium, mm -hmm. or a small uh, speaker, you know, mm -hmm. like an amp. You could sneak that into a country and you could cause a nuclear explosion. You get it up high enough in a, a tall building or whatever. It doesn't have to be in an area that's highly secure. You can put it in a football stadium. You can put it somewhere innocuous mm -hmm. and detonate it and wipe out an entire city. So having an independent nuclear deterrent on a submarine does nothing, absolutely nothing to deter that. So who do we point this weapon at? Who are we pointing at? Who is the enemy? What is the threat level? All these questions have to be answered. And I don't think we've had that debate. If we do need this weapon, then I suppose it has to be done. I'm just not convinced. And I'm not convinced it's worth the amount of money that they're going to spend on it. Right, thank you. So you say that you've moved on this position. I've moved from a definite position on it to a position now where... I really just don't know. And even during the Cold War, you know, some of the people who I really respected, such as Enoch Powell, who was no lefty, said, you know, this weapon is really useless. Because what are you going to do? We're committed to a non-first strike anyway. If somebody launches against us, what are we going to do? If it's a retaliatory strike, then it's merely and simply revenge. Right. And the interesting thing is, I've also actually moved on this position as well. I was full-blown anti-nuclear, unilateral nuclear disarmament. I volunteered a little bit for the CND. I wrote an article for their magazine, Nuclear Free Scotland. Even when I wasn't really a lefty anymore, I'd already become a libertarian when I wrote it, but I thought it was a clear-cut issue and one that I could, say, get behind fully. Now, my reasoning for that was, it's not deterred our enemies so far as we can see. It didn't deter Argentina from seizing the Falklands. An interesting point, because Margaret Thatcher is obviously held up as 
a hero for for saving the Falklands, but actually she was advised against a whole bunch of cuts to uh, military operations in that area at the time, which she was advised might lead to Argentina seizing the Falklands, which she then ignored. But I digress. It seemed to me just completely inhuman because, as you say, any strike that was launched would be revenge. You know, and if I'm fucking toast, I don't really care whether a missile's going back the other way, especially since it can only target civilians who weren't responsible for making the... It's just collective punishment. I mean, if the missiles are flying, then deterrence has failed. Yes, exactly. Now, I guess in theory, I'm... Not against a nuclear deterrent, but absolutely minimal. That's really all you need. Absolutely minimal. In practice, the same people who are hell for leather about replacing this nuclear deterrent are the people who have just been telling us for years that we don't have any money and we need to all tighten our belts and it's austerity this, austerity that, austerity the other. And look... I'm for cutting government spending. I want to reduce the government to the size of a pea or chuck it out if possible. I want to reduce government spending to zero. But politically, it seems all these conservatives are giving free market economics a bad name by conspicuously cutting service. Well, they're not even services. They are entitlements. Which I disagree with, but I think that you have to take a view where you allow the third sector to come in and take over the job of the government before cutting disability allowance and things like that. Those are the last things that I would cut. Things like military spending are no compromise for conservatives who say that there's no money there. So I think politically it's inexpedient to be spending the proposed 40 billion odd. We all know it's going to cost a lot more than that because everything the government says will cost X, costs X times Y. So I don't think it's expedient. I have moved my position on it. In an ideal world, there would be no nuclear weapons, but we can't uninvent them. And how can we be credible when we are telling countries like Iran? not to develop the bomb when we've got it. If anyone has a case for a nuclear deterrent, it's Iran. It's like, look, what you've done in Iraq and Afghanistan, that's your business. We've got these fucking nukes here. Don't come anywhere near us, right? They've got more of a case for it than we do. Yeah, I think... And I think not having nuclear weapons gives us credibility to stand on the world stage and say, well, we don't have them, so you don't go anywhere near them. The other thing is, the three major threats are meant to be terrorism, cyber terrorism, and catastrophic climate change. We might dispute that those really are the three risks, but if we take the government at face value, what does this money do to actually tackle the threats that we face in the real world? Could we not be better looking at the policies that might exacerbate the risk of terror, such as the war on terror, which radicalizes people, and the way that we screen people coming into the country for whether they might have links to those groups and whether we can actually deport people or take action against people who are recruiting 
and things like that. Those kinds of things might be better for the, the risks we actually face today than renewing Trident. Yeah, well, you make good points. If you're going to have submarines, maybe it would have been better putting this money into attack submarines that could combat the enemy's submarines and take out missiles before they're launched. But, I mean, I think the problem that the Ministry of Defence has, I mean, if you're Defence Secretary, when you're looking at something like Trident, you have to try and look geopolitically and look at the world and you have to say to yourself, Okay, at the moment, the Russians may not be the threat that they were in the Cold War. I, I disagree that they could possibly be even more of a threat now than they were during the Cold War. But, regardless of that, are they going to be a threat in the future? You know, we might not be a, a threat at the moment, but let's suppose in the future we were threatened, let's say it's by the Chinese. What do you what do you do? You know, does does a country have the right to defend itself, and does it have its right to defend itself to the max? I really don't know. I just think this debate needs to be had. Daniel Hannan, the Conservative MP, who we both have a lot of time, MEP rather, who we both have a lot of time for, has said as much himself. He said he he believes in it, but we need to have the debate. And Jeremy Corbyn was right to question it. He was right to say, do we need this? You know, what's the situation? I suppose if you're in government, you've got to balance the need for debate with the need to just get a friggin' weapon that's, you know, that, that we can use, that's there, that that's actually so, going to defend us. Given that it's so controversial, isn't there a case to be made for, look, if you want a nuclear deterrent, then you open up your checkbook and let's crowdfund it. And if you're ideologically against one, then you shouldn't be forced through the tax system to pay for one. Jeremy Corbyn made that exact point. He asked David Cameron, can people opt out of this? And I thought, well, that's a good idea, but you know, why don't you extrapolate? Why, don't, exactly. why can't people just opt out of paying income tax altogether? Because I don't want to pay for a lot of things that Jeremy Corbyn agrees with. I suppose the counterpunch from the right would be, well, look, you live in a country with certain benefits and security, you know, your individual rights, liberties, if you have them, and your freedom are protected by a military. If you don't want to pay for that, you're then... You're a free rider. You're a free rider. How you do still you still get a benefit. Yeah. Do you say, you know, what if the Russians do invade, you know, you're not getting protected. You know, we've got a special nuclear weapon that protects everybody else, but not you. I don't know how you do that. Yes, I take that point. Then again, I think that the government is the biggest hander-outer of free rider benefits. <laughs> the question is, right, to what extent is this whole nuclear thing trumped up by the ruling classes? I mean, you know, no in the... Intended. Yeah. In the, you know, in the book 1984, there was some of the greatest insights ever, I think, into the authoritarian mindset. One is that the wars that are fought between nations are not actually meant to be won, but they're actually a weapon of the ruling class in each nation, which is not in the Marxist sense, or oh, the ruling class, but actually the state to oppress their own people. In fact, the wars are never meant to be won, and secretly the leaders might be, you know, having a chuckle to themselves in the background. Oh, ho, ho, we that idea that the soldiers found in the World War One when they started playing football together in Christmas what, that they had more in common with each other than they had with the ruling class of their own country. Similarly, the people at the top benefit from the belief 
that there's another conflict, another war, and it helps them control their own people. I mean, we saw that after 9-11 with the civil liberties being taken away in America under the Patriot Act, there was movement against civil liberties under the Thatcher government, yeah. under the threat of terrorism from the IRA. And uh, similarly, during the Cold War, it seems there's always a threat. There's always got to be a threat. They, those countries in the Middle East can say that America's the great Satan and Israel's the little Satan and all the dictatorships in the Arab world can say, oh, look at Israel. And that will mean that their people won't be looking at their own oppressive government. And similarly, Israel can say, well, we are constantly out of, under threat and that gives them the pretext to have a massive state and no civil liberties and huge taxes and all sorts of things. Uh, I always feel like that's something to bear in mind. Like, to what degree are we being pitted against one another? I think there's a lot to be said. I think there's a, there's a lot of merit in, in what you say. You know, the war's not meant to be won. It's just meant to be continuous. <sighs> you know, the arms race that we were locked in in the Cold War where the Soviet Union was incredibly expensive. In fact, it's what done for the Soviet Union in the end. You know, mm. the, the fact that they, they were locked in an ex highly expensive arms race with the West that they just couldn't afford. And, and, and bizarrely, this would back up your argument. Uh, at a time where uh, the Soviet Union was floundering economically, I mean, they were really doing badly, they borrowed billions from the United States, you know, their, their deadly enemy mm -hmm. in the Cold War. And with that money, they built a new generation of nuclear submarines, you know, that, yeah. <laughs> that were, that were uh, superior to anything. And with that, with that money, they could have possibly turned their economy around. I know. And uh, there was a time when the Soviet Union almost collapsed due to famine and all the European countries in America came in to their aid. But communism could have collapsed, actually. Yeah. And um, it was saved from collapse by the, the capitalist countries, which were in theory antithetical to communism. But I think in terms of power being not a means to an end, but an end in itself, something that people with certain kind of personalities enjoy. Another insight from 1984, they had really a lot in common. So shall we move on to our second new yes, story let's. of the day? Tell um, me about this new child poverty bill and why we selfish, greedy capitalist libertarians are not sure if it's if it's, okay. it's a good idea. Why would we be against that? Why would Little Nicky and the Scottish Notional Party have decided that they're going to end child poverty in Scotland. I mean, there's a big... Uh, I'm looking at the front page of yesterday's Independent here, and it said, Scotland's mission to end child poverty. And on the front, there's a, there's a picture, in case you, you really don't know what child poverty is about, there's a picture of a little boy... And there's a shopping trolley abandoned in the background and there's some graffiti on a boarded up house in front of him. So just to give you a flavour of what poverty in Scotland... Now, the little boy doesn't look emaciated. He doesn't look like an urchin from a Charles Dickens uh, novel. He looks... I mean, he's wearing a little tracksuit and hoodie. He looks clean. He looks healthy. He looks fairly happy enough. He's actually got a funky haircut. I mean, that's got to cost about five, six quid. I mean, I don't know. But apparently, this is what they've chosen as an example of uh, poverty and child poverty in Scotland. I can imagine there's probably a photographer there saying to the little boy, 
excuse me, little boy, can you povo it up a little bit? You know, can you look, can you really look a little bit more scummy than you do? It says here, the bullet points, commitment will be enshrined in Scots law. Right, okay, how you ban poverty through law, I do not know. Sturgeon calls UK approach fundamentally wrong, okay? But then she doesn't really go on to explain what the UK approach actually is. And then this is the one that gets me. One in five children in Scotland lives in poverty. Is that right? One in five children. One in five. That's a colossal amount of children. Are they serious? How come I don't notice this? First of all, how do they define poverty? Anthony, what say you? I mean, I mean, am I living in poverty compared to Donald Trump? I mean, because I'm all right. I mean, I'm not right. starving. You well, know, the I, measure I, of poverty, I believe, is a relative term. Mm-hmm. So that means under the current measures, it's actually impossible to eradicate poverty. Because as people get richer... The goalpost will move. The goalpost will move. Okay. There is a term which is objective. I can't... Unfortunately, I can't remember what it is. But it is worth looking up. And whenever you hear anything about poverty, you really need to be a little bit sceptical to say, how is it defined and how is it measured? Because poverty is a real problem. But unless you have correct statistics and methods then you're not going to be able to be effective in your fight against it. Yeah. The, the article goes on to say, Scotland has previously only had a child poverty strategy, but as Ms Sturgeon said, you know, and there's a wee picture earlier with a wee sort of Jimmy Cranky looking face, and I've got to say this, I'm sorry, but she has got a face I would never get tired of punching and I don't want people getting on my case about violence against women just tell you what get a picture of Nicola Sturgeon put a moustache and a beard on her so she looks like a man and then imagine yourself punching her in the face right but Scotland Scotland previously only had a strategy but uh, now they're going to have they're going to enshrine this in law and uh, the, the Child Poverty Act of 2010 which applied to the whole country the act which established a duty for governments to eradicate the problem by 2020 was replaced with new legislation which instead requires ministers to merely support regularly on measures or report regularly on measures affecting a child's life chances. I don't know how you do this, you know? Well, I mean, in their view, what all you have to do is take money from rich people and give it to poor people and that will be the end of it. <laughs> oh, Really? Right, but yeah. but if we look at history, if you look at the amount of money that is transferred from the wealthy to the poor, it's, you know, something like the entire GDP of Europe a couple of hundred years ago. Now, there, there were socialists in that time, and if you'd said to those socialists, how would you like the entire GDP of Europe per year to fight poverty? Would you be able to eradicate poverty? They would have been able, been like, of course we would. That's loads of money. But it's not as easy as that. When you start transferring wealth from one person to another, it doesn't, it's not just like moving a chess piece. It has knock-on effects on the entire economy. First thing, not as much money is being invested by those rich people into capital machines and factories and things like that which will actually build products and supply and demand. The more stuff is on the market, the price of those products goes down 
thereby making them available yeah. to more people. We first have to acknowledge that poverty has been the norm throughout human history. And for most of human history, almost everyone in the world lived on the equivalent of $3 a day. We need to understand what creates wealth. Yeah. Rather than thinking about poverty being created because because poverty is the natural state you know you're born into the the only reason why we have such high living standards is the people who came here before us produced more than they consumed we're yeah. still going into buildings that dead people built and designed how do we cure poverty well we get the government out of the way between india and china i've heard who were centrally planned economies 30 to 40,000 people are moving out of poverty a month now thanks to the government stepping out the way and allowing markets to function. Yeah, but man, the gap between rich and poor has been bigger, man. Capitalism has been the great equaliser in terms of living standard. The richest person in the world can't get that much better a broadband connection than you, or comfier shoes, or a bed, or a couch. A rich person has a flush yeah. toilet, you yeah. have a flush toilet. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you could have a gold-plated iPhone, but it's still an iPhone. Right. He might have a much more expensive car than an average person in the country does. Well, that's much better than the rich person going around in a carriage with six horses and the average person going around on foot. So the wealth that capitalism creates has done more to create equality than the welfare state has. People who are considered in poverty have access to electricity, to soap, and they can eat food that's flown in from all over the world. I tell you what really fucking burns my toast about this. Alright, okay, I don't own property, right? I pay rent, which is, you know, roughly half of, of what I earn. I don't have a lot of disposable income. I'm not going to inherit any money. I work for practically minimum wage. Am I in poverty? I don't know. I don't regard myself as a poor person. You know, I can eat. Uh, I've got a roof over my head, I've got access to, to uh, electricity, I've got access to, to heat, clean water, sanitation. I don't regard myself as being poor. Now, what I'd really love to see is one of these smug pricks like Nicola Sturgeon or Tommy Sheridan or Rosie O'Kane. I'd like to see them, you know, I've done, I've done some work in, in Africa, you know, some voluntary work. Uh, in East Africa but it doesn't matter where it is whether it's Africa or Bangladesh or anywhere in the world where there's fucking real poverty okay I would like to see you stand up in front of a village of people where a village where people are burying their fucking children right uh, for lack of fucking medical care for lack of fucking water just clean water and facilities and you can stand there with your stupid fucking smug left-wing expression on your face and tell the people there all about the fucking poverty that there is in Scotland because people don't have a fucking widescreen telly. You fucking pricks. You know, it really angers me. It really, it really does. You know, oh, there's the inequality in Scotland. Yeah, do you know what? I think there's going to be inequality in a situation where you get people who are prepared to get up off their fucking arse and work for a living and other people who just think they should stick their hand out and be entitled to food, education, 
Oh, I'm entitled to a house. I'm entitled to uh, clothes. I'm t- just give me. Somebody else should work to pay for me. You lazy fucks. You know, there might be such a thing as the undeserving rich. I am quite prepared to believe that. Is there anybody on the left prepared to, to, to tell me that there's such a thing as the undeserving poor? Uh, sorry, as the deserving poor? Because I think there is. I think there's people out there who are just cunts. And no matter how much money you gave them, do you know what? I'm glad some of these people are in what you call poverty. Because I think they'd be fucking dangerous with money. If that's how if that's how stupid and ignorant and idiotic and antisocial they are with no money. I'd hate to see how bad they would be if they actually had money to do some damage with. I'm sorry, but it, it angers me. And I'm not, a, I'm hardly a captain of industry. I'm not Bill Gates here, okay? I'm just a working guy who pays my rent. And I'm interested in the working poor. That's who I'm interested in. So, yeah, sorry, accept- that's my rant for this week. <laughs> Did that did that beat my Timothy did that know, beat my Timothy Lumsden rant? Someone actually extracted one of Tam's rants from this show and re-uploaded <laughs> it to YouTube with a slideshow, which we're very thankful for. Well I just hope that someone doesn't take this one out of context because it will make you look bad. But well, let's, all right, let's yeah. accept your premise. I'm bad. I know I'm bad. Okay. <laughs> let's accept your premise here. Let's okay. suppose that there are a bunch of people that are just lazy, entitled, and they just want other people to work while they sit on the couch and scratch their balls, right? Right. The argument from the left would still be, well, what about their poor children? They didn't choose to be born into the world, and now you're putting them at a disadvantage because you don't want to give them welfare and you don't want to give them Okay. So what would your response be If you wish to to look after those children... Then you yeah. can you can set up a non-governmental organisation. You can set up a, a, a group. That, I mean, if, if you really care, yeah. Then you know you I can. Have a, I have a real sympathy for that argument. Actually, now that you bring it up, because it seems to me that people on the left are so willing to help the poor with every last penny of someone else's money. Yeah. But ask so many of them to actually get out and do something. I mean. I've got a humanitarian impulse and I've I cared for the environment so I went and I did some tree planting and I've done various other things but I don't want to like you know uh, go through them but I think libertarianism encourages people to see themselves as problem solvers rather than the state and it's always easy to look virtuous by saying the government should do this the government should do that fundamentally have we got any evidence that the welfare state has not just made more poor children because now... No, I think all the evidence points to the opposite. Because now, now, oh, you're such a humanitarian, you want to give lots of benefits to single parents and to people in poverty. Now you're making it easy for people in poverty to have children. It might sound sketchy, but I think it's humanitarian. The only people who can have children now... Uh, more than two children now are poor people because they get lots of benefits and extremely rich people. Middle class people are finding it extraordinarily hard to bring children into the world and I think there's some evidence that most of the good parenting is going to come from the middle class where they've got money 
to take care of their children and time to look after them as opposed to the other two sectors. So it it, it is a concern. It is a concern. To what degree are we encouraging people to bring other people into poverty? Well, and, and here's another thing. If you want to, you know, rob Peter to pay Paul, if you actually want to take money away from those who earn it and give it to those who don't, okay? If you want to do that, then those people who earn have to have the potential to earn. And there's a small article here just under the main article on the child poverty thing. And it's just interesting. It's a much smaller article. And it just says, uh, Scotland had no growth prior to the EU vote. Scotland's economy has flatlined and prospects for growth are, quote, probably bleaker now than at any time since the finance-led crisis in 2008. Right? The economy saw 0% growth in the first three quarters of 2016, the last full quarter before the Brexit vote. Now, if your economy's not growing, that's that's bad for everybody. You know, the, the first item on the agenda, agenda should be, not should we cure child poverty, should we get the, the, the economy in a state that's going to make everybody benefit? So that at least, if you do want to rob Peter to, to pay Paul... You have to make sure that Peter's able to earn the money to do it. So, and they're not doing that. And the, the last quote in this article, I don't want to read the whole thing, is Professor John McLaren of Glasgow's University's Adam Smith Business School. Okay, I mean, everybody's going, oh yeah, that's the Adam Smith Institute. They're they're you know they're they're right wing. Well, fine, but you know, said prospects for growth are probably bleaker now than any time since the the, the finance led crisis in two thousand and eight. That's bad. That's a bad picture for for everybody. And Ms. Sturgeon doesn't seem to have any plans about how I mean, she should. Well, maybe that's a good thing because she shouldn't plan it. She should just get the fuck out of the way and let people who do know how to run a business and do know how to make money get on with it. Right. If you want to solve poverty, first thing, free market. As many jobs as possible will exist. Not only that, but it actually becomes profitable to employ people and train them and give them skills. They can fuck off after they've been trained and get another job that they can prefer. In fact, if there's loads of jobs in the economy, you can go into a job, work for it for six months, get a crappy wage, learn skills, do the same thing in another job, and just keep on moving from job to job until you're so skilled, you can start a business, you can get a supervisory position. That is not possible with the level of minimum wage and all the regulations that businesses have to follow. There's not that many jobs, which means that workers need to admit low conditions and low pay because there's no... It's an employer's market. Yeah, it's an employer's market. Secondly, the third sector is far better at dealing with poverty than the government because they can go in with charities, see what the reality on the ground is and see what the needs of people are to bring them out of poverty. If they need training, the charity can provide training and they have to compete for people's donations with every single other charity doing work, which means they need to say, these are the results we're getting. The government, blank check. If they don't get results, we don't have enough money. Give us more. Thirdly, as you'd like to see Nicola Sturgeon go and deliver a speech to people in the third world who are deeply in poverty, what I really want to see is some left-wing people coming out and saying, look, 
the amount of regulations on house pricing has shot house prices through the roof. If we want to tackle poverty, we actually need to allow people to build as many houses as are needed to cater yeah. to the demand for housing. And guess what? All those people in the middle class and I'm sorry, your house prices are going to go down. The good news is that you'll never have to worry about being able to afford a house again because on a free market, I guarantee there'll be so much freaking housing coming out of your ears and people will be able to let their friends stay in their living room um, they while they're at uni. I don't think it's that bad a situation to have four people staying in a three-bedroom flat. In fact, you'd be lucky to have a one-bedroom home with six people living in it a couple of hundred years ago and people got by fine, right? And talk about the fact that central banks printing money devalues the currency and everybody's money. These lefties who say they care so much about poverty do not talk about state intervention to the economy which pushes up the prices of houses and pushes down the value of money. Why? Because if they talked about it, that would mean less government, more free market. Yeah. They're only interested in pointing to the free market as the culprit of every problem in society and not pointing out when the state's been involved in creating poor living standards. Amen, brother. I, I mean, like, people in Africa get this. People in Africa get this. They have said repeatedly, let us trade, don't give us aid. Aid is not the solution. Trade is. Let us trade with you. Let us sell our goods in your market. And one of the good things maybe of getting out of the, the Europeans will maybe be able to trade yes. uh, with people in Africa and raise their standard of living, which we previously couldn't do because we were locked into idiotic trade deals set up by, by yeah, governments. I mean, people talk about uh, sweatshops in Cambodia. And yeah, that's bad in the short term. No one would advocate that. But the number of people in poverty, in extreme poverty in Cambodia is halved from something like 24 million to 12 million. It's like, it's these countries which have opened up trade that are actually bringing people out of poverty. Why? Because the entrepreneurs can go in and say that's cheap labor, but once they're in there, they bring factories, they teach people skills, and it's hard to just move the factory to somewhere else. If another entrepreneur sets up next door, that bids up the price of wages. Yet, sweatshops aren't ideal, but they pay four to seven times on average what people in that country are getting outside of the sweatshop, plus all of Europe was a sweatshop for the first 70 odd years of the Industrial Revolution. But that is a stepping stone to greater wealth. They can get there faster than we can because we've already invented the technology they just need the wealth to buy it and adopt it yeah. we had to invent it all from scratch we can change the world we can eradicate poverty but it needs to be through free market and sustainable development not through taking money from one part of the economy and transferring it to the other, which is a bit like taking water from the deep end of the swimming pool to the shallow end and spilling some of it along the way. Yeah, you eradicate poverty by making poor people into rich people, not by turning rich people into poor people. I think we've owned it on poverty. Do yeah. you want to talk about That's, something else? Let's move on with that shit. My mate Milo. Milo Yiannopoulos. Yeah, I wonder what that's worth at Scrabble, actually. <laughs> Yiannopoulos. You don't um, to do names. Okay. Milo Yiannopoulos. For those of you who don't know Milo, Milo is a kind of... He, he's a, a right-wing commentator 
uh, from the website Breitbart, which is like a, a conservative online website. He's known for being highly controversial, saying, making statements against the mainstream. He's part of what they call the alternative right. And, and he's, he, he's flamboyantly gay, which is really interesting. He's flamboyantly gay. He comes across shield. as a bit of it's a middle-class fop. Yeah, um, it's, the, it's his shield against criticism from sort of social justice warriors that have a hierarchy yeah. of... And um, bizarrely also claims to be a devout Catholic as well. Well, not devout, but he, he, he's, he's, uh, he's a Roman Catholic. But... Uh, anyway, he's for, quite. He's quite. I good. like him. I, okay. I, I think he's an arsehole, but I think. But, but I think I'd, I'd I have, like him because he just yeah, doesn't seem I'd to have, give a fuck. I think I'd have lots of fun having a drink with him. Uh, not a date, but. Uh, <laughs> but well, you like, heard it here first. <laughs> but um, Mr. Yiannopoulos, if you're listening, you know we've got uh, the, the. I don't know. I think you could do worse than uh, Mr. Samarov. Well, uh, don't sadly, fancy him myself, but. <laughs> The lady doth protest too much. Uh, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I'm, I'm not of that persuasion personally, but I think he's a bit of an arsehole. I think he's funny, but what I like is he's quite rigorous and he's good with chucking out facts. I think sometimes his statements can be quite m- misleading. Rigorous, would you say now, he's rigid? I wouldn't know. Okay. Now, the libertarian community, including lots of well-known people like Julie Borowski and Stefan Molyneux and things like that, have been posting up defences of free speech after Mr. Yiannopoulos has been He's been banned, banned from, from Twitter. Twitter. Again. Again. But this time it's permanent, apparently. Right. So, I mean, let's uh, quick, it just says here, Milo Yiannopoulos, a conservative writer for the right-wing website Breitbart, has been permanently banned from Twitter a day after Ghostbusters actress Leslie Jones said she was leaving the social media site, quote, in tears, unquote, oh dear, because of the abuse she was receiving on the platform. Twitter cited, quote, targeted abuse online as one of the reasons for removing Mr Yiannopoulos, who tweeted under the handle at Nero. Now I don't know I don't know much about you kids and this this shitter thing. I mean I, I'm not on it. I don't do it. I'm not really interested in it. I don't want to know every two minutes what somebody thinks about anything. And but, like 128 characters. Yeah, I know. It's just I, I just I hate this shit. You know, but anyway there's a lot about one of your rants in 128 uh, <laughs> uh, that would be like impossible. Yeah I couldn't do my rant in hundred it'd be a challenge. I'd like to try and do a rant in 128 characters but or less, but I wouldn't even know how to even begin. There are claims he deliberately encouraged his large following on Twitter to send her abuse. And Mrs. Ms. Jones said she was in a personal hell, quote, and posted some of the racist slurs she was receiving. Okay. Now, here's where I dissent from the libertarian community. Go for it, big boys. If Milo did encourage his followers to tweet abuse at this woman, eh, he deserves to be banned. It's a private company, he's got no right to an account. If he gets an account for free, he has to comply by the rules. And if he did encourage his followers to send her abuse, get him to fuck. He broke the rules, he's broken the rules before, and now he can uh, not complain about, oh, it's my free speech. Yeah, he contracted. It's my free speech. Can someone go to a synagogue and start Zeke Heiling and say it's it's my free speech. No, it's their private property. If you go to the synagogue, then you comply by the rules. Otherwise, just don't go to a synagogue. Yeah, well, I mean, like I say, I, I, I like Milo. I like his style. I like the fact that he... I don't think he's a particularly good 
debater or speaker necessarily, but I, I just like the fact he doesn't give a monkey's But I don't think he can cry foul on this one either. Like you said, I was hoping you'd debate me. I, I know, but I'm finding it hard to do because you've made the the, the case for it's a private company. However, okay, does Twitter? receive any tax breaks or does it receive any does it receive a penny of public money if twitter takes public money in the uk for any reason whatsoever that means it's taking milo's money and he's entitled to free speech on their website right because it's then it's not completely private so that's the only caveat I would uh, put. If there's any but public... nothing's completely private because you use the roads and you use the blah and the, you know. But, so I've you're been, tacitly but if I use the, if I use the road, generally I'm paying road tax and that's voluntary. Yeah. You know? So let me make devil's advocate against myself. Okay. Well, Twitter never deleted permanently banned any of those Black Lives Matter people who were saying kill all white men or those feminists who said that. Uh, well, do like, you know what? Uh, maybe it should have. I would say, yeah, maybe, no, well, maybe it should have, maybe it shouldn't have. But Twitter, like you say, is a private company. It it's got it can, a liberal bias. It can, well, yeah, that's what it can, some it can do what saying. it likes. You know, it can, it can have that if it wants. It can make that discrepancy and that discrimination if it so likes. I'm all for that. And do you know what? If you have a Twitter account and you disagree with this decision by Twitter, Get the fuck off of Twitter. Just close your account. All you guys who are crying foul, get off of Twitter. Boycott. Don't have it. Well, not, not boycott. Just go fuck it. Start your own Twitter. You know? Or I'm sure there is other social media out there very similar to Twitter who do the same thing. You just don't get the same exposure on it. Just Scottish vote with your feet Liberty or your fingers. Podcast operates without a Twitter. But we, we have do. just got... A Facebook page so please pop on to Facebook and like the Scottish Liberty podcast so that you can get updates yeah. whenever we put a new podcast and feel free to abuse us invite well. all your friends <laughs> you can't threaten violence because that's against the law anyway well, fuck you can threaten violence against me if you like I don't give a shit but you can you can say you kick you can your say, ass anyway yeah exactly bring it on down. especially if you're that 12 year old guy who passed me on a bike earlier today I'll kick your ass no problem so uh, yeah you can you can say what you like on our Facebook comment on YouTube yeah comment on YouTube and subscribe on iTunes uh, and that's about the limit of my down with the kids shit I've got no idea about anything else so Anthony be libertarians yeah, don't be a righty. Or a lefty? Yeah. Well, you say don't be a lefty for once. Is that not what I said? You say don't be a lefty. Okay, well, okay, well, well, don't be a I know, I said don't be a righty. No, I want you to say don't be a lefty this time. Okay, definitely don't be a lefty, ever. Or a righty. <laughs> <laughs>